Howdy, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. Tyler, I stumbled over my words. Um, I've been doing that a lot lately. Yeah, sorry, I'm David. I'm Tyler. Um, so I've been ta- I've taken to doing. Uh, I'm trying to teach myself Spanish. Okay. And so uh, sometimes on my, my morning walks around the neighborhood, either by myself or with with uh, the dog, I'll be kind of like doing Duolingo on my phone. And I've come to realize that like wearing a mask doesn't actually mean no one can hear me, but I'd like left. So I just like talk to myself. And so I'm like, uh, <laughs> I'm doing the, like, uh, um, uh, the Duolingo. I'm like saying these Spanish phrases out loud. And some of them, like I'm not used to talking another language. They are, they're literally like tongue twisters sometimes. And I'm like, es importante. Es importante. God damn it. Like, I'm just like cussing out loud to myself. Um, uh, I do that like every morning now. Uh, so that's uh, what's up with me, but I'm also watching now, a bunch it, of movies. Importante. Now, what is that? <laughs> um, it means snake. Uh, <laughs> and that's the thing is everyone was like, oh my gosh, there's a snake. Um, as, as you're yeah. walking down the street. Yeah. Uh, I felt like there was something else I was going to say, uh, but I, but I can't remember. There's so much stuff going on. Yeah. Uh, there's so much like, uh, some, some weeks when we do our like main episode, you and I are like, what should we do for like that? We do our like top of the show mini topic. I feel like yeah. there's so many like interesting, fun things lately. Yeah. And I think we'll probably on this week's main episode, probably get into a little bit, of whether or not Hamilton is a movie. We'll talk about that then um, because our guest, I was actually on his podcast and we talked about it at some length. So we'll probably rehash that conversation, but there's also fun stuff. Like, have you heard the, the rumor that Keanu Reeves is coming back as Constantine? I did not hear that. No. <laughs> uh, apparently JJ Abrams is uh, um, developing a like HBO max original Constantine movie. And uh, there are rumors that he's asking Keanu Reeves to revise the reprise the role. Reprise, Um, yeah. Yeah. So there's uh, so much fun stuff going on that I want to talk about. But that's for the main show, I guess. We'll just talk about the movies we've seen instead, right? Indeed, yes. And I'm starting with, man, this this thing, this weekly thing, I feel bad. This weekly thing where my wife picks a movie that she she can't believe I haven't seen or or that she just loves and she was on a roll for a while there picking like great stuff like stuff i loved like going back to before the quarantine there was like summer rental uh r.i.p carl reiner by the way sure. um there's uh the money pit and mermaids and then we just, and even like stuff that was like just okay was really interesting like to wong fu mm-hmm. thanks for everything julia noir we've had a couple of duds in a row i talked a lot in the last movie journal about jailbreaker this one's not as bad but it's more of a disappointment because this is a movie that so many people our age and a little bit older than us love uh and that's howard deutsch is pretty in pink um, oh yeah yeah oh yeah jen jen loves this movie and i wonder if it's it's dated but not dated enough yet like i wonder if there will be a point where i can look at it and say oh that was the 80s but sure. right now it's recent enough that i can't stop thinking like this is just this is supposed to be like a there's supposed to be romance or like a love triangle type thing, but really this is just a story about a woman who's being harassed by multiple or a young a girl who's being harassed by multiple boys at the same time. Like mm-hmm. none of the boy, like James Spader's character is, he's my favorite of the, of the three because he's supposed to be an asshole. Yeah. So at least that like, okay, at least he is what he's supposed to be. Yeah. But like, um, uh, who plays Blaine, uh, Andrew McCarthy. Yeah. Yeah. Like, they, you know, he's supposed to be like the good option, but he doesn't like, there's no good case for him. He treats her kind of like shit. He like everything she accuses him of in, in terms of you expected me be, to be impressed by your money and flattered that you would let me hang out with your friends. It's like, yeah, that's right. Plus there's nothing else redeeming about him. And then to, to top it all off, 
John Cryer as Ducky is just full on like a stalker and a harasser. And the most hilarious part to me is when he's like alone in his bedroom and he's like, tonight's going to be the night I have to tell her how I feel. And I'm like, bro, you have told her how you feel. Twice <laughs> a sentence in every scene in the entire movie up to this point. It's yeah. not a secret. Uh, she's not into you. Like, she's just not that into you, man. Yeah. Um, and I just, I, I, I found it, um, largely grating. We, uh, oddly for a movie that is, seems so defined by the relationship between Ringwald and these three boys, the best part of the movie is the long stretch in the middle when her only scenes are either with Harry Dean Stanton or with Annie Potts. Yeah. When the boys are gone from the movie for about, it's like 35 minutes of the movie when there's no yeah. boys in it. That's the best part of, of the movie. But, um, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I do think that there's, there's an, I, I see what you mean, which is like when we get far enough from the eighties that we just see that like this type of dynamic was seen as romantic and within certain genre, within a certain genre tone, maybe this is more acceptable and seen even as romantic. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a film that, this is going to sound, this is going to sound mean. And I don't, I don't necessarily mean for it to, but like, I do think there are certain actors that you watch them now, but also maybe even watch them then. And it's like, they have such a unique presence that I think they might've been mis like misused. Like Andrew McCarthy is like a romantic lead. Andrew McCarthy is a perfectly fine actor, but it's odd that he was a romantic lead. I, I, I'm sure he was a he was a perfectly fine looking guy, but just the, his his on screen presence is not one that strikes me as like uh, you know a dreamboat or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And and so I do wonder like if that character was played by somebody else. And again, it's not to say that Andrew McCarthy is a bad actor, um, but if you if if that character is played by somebody maybe a little bit more bland. Um, I don't know. I wonder how he would come across because I think Andrew McCarthy has a certain, for lack of a better term, neurosis to him, mm -hmm. despite, even though being, even though he is a good looking guy, uh, that I wonder if the character seems more, and maybe it's something that he chose to bring to the character, um, in his performance. Maybe he wanted him to seem a little bit entitled and, and all of that because of the, you know, his background and stuff. But I do, uh, I do wonder that every once in a while there's just like actors who were big during a certain moment and everyone's like, everyone insisted like, Oh, this guy is, is like a, a, a symbol of this time. And uh, Andrew McCarthy is one of them again, please not to say that he was a bad actor, but that like, it's interesting the way he was used. It's, I, I it's not exactly the same as like Eric Bana being in everyone insisting on making him into a bland lead when in fact, he's more of a character actor type. It's not necessarily that it's more just like, I don't know, like, especially when it's a younger gener a movie for a younger generation featuring younger actors and we don't maybe necessarily know what we think of them yet. And so they're just trying to mm. fit them into a specific mold that maybe they don't fit into. And we realize that in retrospect, I don't know. Uh, I didn't realize until I just looked it up that Andrew McCarthy is now a, has a very successful career as a t as a TV director. He's done like oh, 15, cool. e 15 episodes of Orange is the New Black, like 13 episodes of The Blacklist. You see, oh, it just shows with black in the title. Um, sure. Um, but uh, it reminds me, um, the last thing I think I saw Andrew McCarthy in, uh, which was, um, well, uh, over 10 years ago, was, uh, are you, no, I know you're not the, as much of a TV geek as I used to be. Are you familiar with the concept of the backdoor pilot? You know what that yes. means? Yes, yes. Um, so Gossip Girl did a backdoor pilot in uh, season two where because they were going to do a spinoff of Serena's mom's character as a teenage girl in Los Angeles in the eighties. And Andrew McCarthy played her dad. And that's so funny. That's so sure. funny. Like to take one of the Brat Pack actors and make him a dad in the eighties. Of course. Uh, yeah. Is very, very funny. Um, well, I mean, like it, that's something that they like, uh, you know, Luke Perry, RIP, uh, 
plays, I think, Archie's father on Riverdale, which is a very, though it has more of a mystery quality to it, it is very 90210-esque. And so, like, having yeah. these actors who Mitch, are so... Uh, Mitch, and, Mitch and Amick from yes. Twin Peaks is on that yeah. show, too. Yeah, they, they seem to do that on purpose. Um, a couple of other things about Pretty in Pink. Uh, <laughs> I now realize... It made me want to watch not another teen movie again, but also it was surprising to realize like, oh, the ducky character not in another teen movie, not as much of an exaggeration as I thought he was. Yeah. Um, also, uh, cinematography by Tak Fujimoto um, sure. in, in Pretty in Pink. It is it is a nice looking, very 80s uh, in a good way. Uh, type of movie. Uh, all right. What did, what did you watch? Incidentally, when you mentioned James Spader in that movie, I can't help but think of uh, our friend Jimmy Pardo doing an impression of James Spader in that movie, which is just him saying, uh, who do you think you're talking to? <laughs> just like, <laughs> just so slimy and smarmy. Um, anyway, uh, okay, so my, my first film, speaking of Riverdale, my first uh, film is the Irwin Brothers, I Still Believe, which is a, a Christian film starring K.J. Appa, who plays Archie oh, on okay. Riverdale. That's why I was like, what? Yeah. Yeah, there we go. Um, and uh, so it's, you know what? I haven't seen like a full-on faith-based movie in a while. Uh, I was too busy thinking about them for months and months as I was making that uh, documentary. But um, one thing I had heard was uh, a lot of people in certain circles saying like, oh my gosh, I still believe it's so great. It's like a, you know, it's like a real movie and all that sort of thing. Um, which by the way, like it's, it's, not a good sign for whatever genre you're working within when someone's like, Oh no, this one's like a real movie. Um, <laughs> but you know what? I totally know what they mean when they say that. Uh, so I watched it and I, I had previously, previously seen Woodlawn by the Irwin brothers, which I thought was pretty good once as is often the case, flawed script. Um, but pretty well done from a, from a visual standpoint. And then I saw, I can only imagine which, uh, good performances again not a great script and it has the misfortune for me of being based uh you know based around the world of like christian uh music which i don't enjoy really at all <laughs> um and uh like the, the standard joke that i say even though it isn't really a joke is uh the song i can only imagine like bart millard uh it, told this story about like, Oh, he wrote that song in like 20 minutes and it's a huge hit. Uh, and people find it very inspiring. And there's always on Facebook or whatever. Anytime somebody talks about the movie, they're like, they're like he wrote it in 20 minutes. Can you believe it? And my answer is usually like, yes, I can hundred <laughs> percent. In fact, I'm a little surprised it took that long. Um, but, uh, and same with, I still believe that it's, uh, it's the story of uh, Jeremy camp who, uh, it was a Christian musician and uh, got engaged to this uh, woman when he was very young and she was very young and she got, uh, she got very sick with cancer and uh, then was miraculously healed. It just one day the cancer was just gone all of a sudden. And it's like, Oh, this is very exciting. Uh, and then it came back six months later and then she tragically passed away at a fair, at a, like a very young age of, I think 2021. 20, and, um, so it's it's that story, and then the 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 love interest is played by Britt Robertson, who I think brings more to the character than is actually written. She's a very reliable actress. The film looks good visually. Uh, it it looks like a real film. Um, Christian film, by and large, is kind of scared of the night. Um, those movies tend to be very sun dappled, and this one <laughs> is not, which is kind of nice. Uh, but to me. Part of the problem, and incidentally, I just recorded an episode of More Than One Lesson uh, about this film, and that'll be posting uh, tomorrow. And so I talk at length about it uh, there. But um, anyway, uh, to me, so Jeremy Camp wrote this song called I Still Believe, and he wrote it after the death of his wife. And okay, if you're going to call your movie that, and the still is the operative word here. I still believe mm -hmm. suggesting that there was a moment maybe when I didn't, or I was in danger of not believing because of these circumstances. Uh, so you kind of get the impression that the film along with being kind of this romance and this uh, illness drama, that it's going to be about a, a crisis of faith brought on by loss. Uh, that lasts about a minute and a half. And then he gets over it. Thank God. And writes this totally mediocre song. And mm. 
Uh, that to me, I, I think is the problem because it does reduce this, uh, this young woman, even though we do get to know her, know her over the course of the film, it reduces her solely to, uh, the inspiration for this song. And it pays sort of just lip service to the idea of a crisis of faith or doubt or anything like that. And, uh, it's very rare for me to want a Christian film to be longer. Usually they are way too long and I think they can cut 20 to 25 minutes out. This is one where it's about two hours. I think it could have been two fifteen. Cause I don't want to cut out any of the romance. I don't want to cut out any of the relationship stuff because when, she, when she eventually does pass away, it's, it's more powerful. We feel like we've lost somebody, but it, if it's going to ostensibly be about this guy's faith and the impact on his faith, we see extremely little of that. And so it doesn't really earn its title. It doesn't really earn the, the, the writing mm-hmm. of the song. Um, so this is an instance where I think the, the screenplay uh, falls short, even though the actors all do a pretty solid job and it is a, a well shot film. Um, but I think for what it's, tr- what I think it's trying to do, I think it falls, uh, it comes up short. I will say unsurprisingly. All right. Uh, I watched a, uh, a documentary that's um, uh, it premiered on, on HBO and is, is making some waves or it, it um, um, played Sundance this past year uh, or this year. Um, God, it seems so long ago. Uh, um, uh, back when we used to like get on planes and then go like watch movies with other people. Uh, I can't even, I can't even imagine. Boy. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. Okay. Uh, no, I watched a, a documentary directed by David France called Welcome to Chechnya. I don't know if you've uh, heard about this, Tyler. Uh, David, heard France, uh, David France also directed How to Survive a Plague uh, oh, sure, sure. Uh, a few years, almost 10 years ago, maybe. Um, Welcome to Chechnya is about, uh, well, the first, first layer of it is it's about the fact that um, being uh, gay or even being accused of being gay in Chechnya is... Um, uh, uh, it's a sentence of torture by the government and often uh, murder by your own family. Um, mm. This is something that happens is that they torture uh, people they suspect of being gay to get more names. They torture those people, they get more names and they turn these people back over to the family and say, uh, basically say, if you, this person is bringing shame in your family. If you murdered them, we would look the other way. That's essentially what goes on in, in Chechnya. Um, and uh, so specifically uh, the movie follows a group that I think it's just called the Russia, Russian LGBT, LGBT network. And it's a, a group of people who uh, use, you know, um, what funding they, they have from donations and stuff to, get people out of Chechnya um, and often out of Russia altogether. Um, and uh, it's incredibly dangerous work for them. It's incredibly dangerous for the people who are trying to, to leave. Um, and, and so the movie has obviously because it's a documentary, it has real serious stakes and because of what they're doing and often feel it has the, this sounds like I'm diminishing it, but I'm not, it has the feel of like a thriller because there, there are scenes where they're like, they've, there's one sequence where this woman has told her family she was going dress shopping, but really she's meeting up with these people. They toss her phone in the garbage at a like coffee shop and because they know they can, that her family can trace the phone and they hightail it to the airport. And they know at any point that her family tries to get a hold of her, they might figure out what's going on. Yeah. And so there's a, the scene of them like going through security at the airport and there's like a hidden camera in, in a bag. And it's just like, edge of your seat tense hmm. uh, stuff and the movie's full of stuff like that but the uh on top of that the thing that's really fascinating that's c- getting a lot of uh attention is the technology that was used it because these people need they're being the people that are on camera are being you know they're fleeing chechnya they're fle- fleeing russia yeah. and they're planning on living and hiding they, their faces can't be shown so instead of doing the blur out thing or the silhouette thing, they actually like Irishman style went and created fake faces for oh all my these gosh. people throughout the entire, uh, movie. And so you actually, you know, the, the technology reacts to their reaction. So you actually get facial expressions and stuff. And, and, and that's very helpful. Um, and you kind of, for like, uh, as with the Irishman, you kind of forget a lot of the time, yeah. uh, there'll be weird times where someone will like, 
uh, I don't know, the listener can't see me, but someone will like lean on their hand sure. because the edges of the the face are around their face. And so suddenly their hand and the side of their face is like all blurry. Yeah. Um, there are weird things like that, but it's really fascinating and really a uh, great use of that technology to be able to see the emotions on people's faces. That's great. When it would be immoral to actually show their real faces. Uh, fascinating stuff uh, worth watching. Um, even though I had, uh, it took me a couple of days to be able to watch it because for some reason, the version of Welcome to Chechnya that was originally available on the HBO Now app was dubbed in Spanish. And I like emailed and, uh, and tweeted at HBO and a bunch of other people did too. I like Googled yeah. it and it, I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know the inner workings of it. It took them like, like I said, like two days to actually fix it. Uh, but to their credit, they actually uh, like, tweeted at me when it was fixed like hey it's fixed yeah. now which is very nice of them unlike we lost power yesterday the other morning here in my neighborhood uh because the rumor is that someone ran into a uh a pole hmm. um and they and they have a a really neat system where you can report it online and then you can put in your phone number and they say we'll text you when the power's back on no that never happened the power yeah. came back on we never got uh, a text message yeah, I think they're counting on in a situation like that. They're counting. It's like, well, we'll text them if we think about it. But if the power comes back on, they'll just be happy about that. And we, yeah. they won't care about the text. Yeah, yeah uh, I will say, I mean, you know, maybe if you'd been a little bit more disciplined with those Spanish lessons, that HBO thing wouldn't have been a problem. Or, hey, you know, I just started. Maybe if okay. maybe if they premiered in a year, I would have been fine with it. All right. What did you watch? Uh, okay, so next for me is Jeffrey A. Brown's The Beach House, which is uh, available, I think, exclusively on Shutter. And uh, hmm, I'd say mostly I don't care for it. Okay. It's very strong visual sense, uh, almost enough to recommend it um, because uh, there's a nice patience to the movie. It features this young couple who uh, are sort of on the they're in a, a tough spot in their relationship. And so uh, they go to this beach house owned by the guy's parents, but that they never go there. So they go there just to kind of rekindle their, their romance. Uh, lo and behold, there's actually an older couple already staying there uh, because they're friends with the guy's father and they actually got permission. Whereas the guy and his girlfriend just showed up. Uh, and so this, uh, the four of them decide to just hang out uh, one evening and drink and get kind of high and all that. So after the, uh, the little, the night of partying every, the next day, everything, all hell breaks loose. Everything goes completely wrong uh, in ways that are varied um, there seems to be some kind of biological component that like almost as though nature itself, by which I mean, the concept of nature is like re rebelling, uh, in every conceivable way. Um, and it's all very vague. And so like these, these four characters are trying to figure out what to do. Um, and there are things that I do like, I like that, um, I don't, I'm not spoiling anything when I say that like, the problem has nothing to do with the presence of the older couple. Like the fact that they're there and it makes for some social awkwardness is incidental. It's, it's not even really used as a red herring. Um, it's more just like, yeah, this is the kind of weird specific stuff that people are, would be trying to navigate in, in the midst of terrible things, you know? So I kind of really like that. Yeah. That's interesting. The problem is that, you know, everything stays so vague. I don't require a movie to explain, uh, certainly a horror movie to explain everything to me, especially when it has such a strong visual sense and such a sense of patience, uh, setting things up and paying them off. Um, but it's hard to explain. Like when I think of a movie like the Blair Witch Project, you know, that's not a film that gives you a lot of, it doesn't explain what's going on but it gives you just enough, you know, of the mythology or the mythos that you can fill in the blanks if you want to. And barring all of that, you watch it and you get a very good sense that the people who wrote and directed this thing, they know everything that's going on, but they're only revealing it to you a little bit. Here, it feels like 
he like the writer director didn't really lay the groundwork well enough. So now it feels like the vague, the, the vagueness of the explanations is him uh, using that as a cover for the fact that he doesn't really know what's going on himself. He's just guessing. He's just guessing. It, it kind of has that. Now I wouldn't have a problem with that if it was really putting me in the mindset of the main characters, except they're not really well-defined enough for me to get that sense either. So it's, it really is just like a strong sense of atmosphere, which I really appreciate. Um, but in the end, I just, it just felt like it was kind of flailing a little bit and then just sort of shrugs. Uh, and, and also has this, this portent to it suggesting that there's some really important stuff going on here. Maybe, I don't know. And so I think it's just, you know, I really don't require a movie to make sense, but I do want to, but I do want to feel like I'm in good hands and, uh, and I don't here. I feel like it's a director trying to sort of cover his tracks a little bit, um, which is unfortunate because I think that he sets the, he sets the groundwork tonally, but not narratively, not from a character standpoint. And then when everything starts paying off, I'm just not really that invested. All right. Uh, I watched the movie that, uh, I guess premiered at Toronto in 2018 came out in the U S last year. And I'd just been meaning to get around to it. And that is Annabelle Jenkel's tell it to the bees, which is a, uh, uh, uh I guess, a. Uh, lesbian romance set in 1950s uh, rural Scotland um, in which uh, Anna Paquin uh, plays a, um, uh, a a doctor that uh, is she's the town doctor uh, everyone's uh, very impressed by the existence of a lady doctor uh, we're all then, very impressed here let me tell yeah. you yes and she she also keeps uh keeps bees and that sort of makes her friends with this uh, uh this sort of boy who doesn't fit in at uh at school and so then when his parents split up um uh he and his mom need a place to live and the doctor takes them in and doctor and the mom uh become more than friends tyler mm. uh and I wanted, I wanted to watch this um, for uh, a number of reasons, but the main one is that it is the return to feature directing of Annabelle Jankel. And if you don't know the name Annabelle Jankel, I'll, I'll, let me run you through. She, uh, in the, starting in the, in the 80s, she had a lot of uh, music video credits, Elvis uh, Costello, Tom Tom Club, Rush. She did uh, Max Headroom episodes that made her feature mm-hmm. debut with the 80s version of the remake of DOA with Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan, and then got I made a Talking Heads video and then got her big break with 1993's yeah. Super Mario Brothers. And I then, knew I recognized that name. <laughs> and then illustrating perfectly the off-discussed concept of director jail does not have another credit for 12 years yeah <laughs> um and had not made another other than a uh a tv movie in 2009 had not made another feature until tell it to the bees um so i i was just interested to watch it for a lot of uh those reasons and also you know the kind of like uh lesbian like we're in we're in love but we have to hide it and that uh there's something ex- sexy about all that sort of uh uh surreptitiousness and and repression stuff is very up my alley uh anyway and um i i really like the the performances like the the costume design i like there is i think Annabelle Jekyll does have a really good uh she and her cast have a good soft hand with building the relationship between these two women and making it feel like a romantic and physical connection even though they actually spend very little of the movie actually touching or being openly in a relationship because they can't be because even when they're home the boy's there and they know that if he finds out then the town finds out you know um (laughs) what surprised me about the movie is that i hadn't heard of it heard more about it because and maybe it just wasn't high profile enough but it had there's a there's a there's a term that gets thrown around on on Twitter film Twitter but Twitter in general that you know listeners know that I hate I hate the term bonkers right oh okay but this movie has the kind of like ridiculous but straight faced ending 
that film Twitter, like film Twitter loves stuff like the book of life and, uh, sure. Life itself. Most of the movies with life in the title that I haven't seen any of those movies, but the movies like, can you believe they did this? Like it's, you know, that, and I don't want to get into it, but the way that the bees come into the story, like narratively near the end is what the internet would call bonkers. Um, and it was a bit of a demerit for me. Like I definitely was taken out of the movie by, uh, um, uh, how, how silly I found some of the ending, but it doesn't really discount the movie for me. Uh, I think Annabelle Jenkel, uh, should get more, uh, opportunities. Uh, she, she's a she's a good director and tell it to the bees is mostly a good movie with some stuff at the end that very well may make you laugh out loud i know that's what it did to me like my wife and i were watching it together and like we were both enjoying it and then like the boy says something the line is uh, about the bees he says it's something like it's okay they're swarming and i went like <laughs> And like looked over my wife, we like looked at each other, and like from that point to the end of the movie, we're not we were not in the movie <laughs> anymore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, that's too bad because I liked it up until then, and it's not enough to ruin the movie for me. Okay. Uh, next for me is a rewatch. Uh, it is Anton Corbin's A Most Wanted Man, which is a movie that you know it's so interesting. Um, it was one of my top 10 of that year. And then I watched, and then I, I have it on Blu-ray and I watched it again, uh, a few years after that. And then I, and then Jen and I watched it last night. And as I'm watching it, like it's, you know, it's based on a John Le Carre novel. And so of course it's going to be pretty downbeat and also it's going to, it's going to be a thriller while also not nobody is in physical danger in this film. Uh, they're in danger of being, you know, arrested and all that, but like no one's going to get shot. There's no real gunplay or anything like that. Uh, instead, everything hinges on whether a character signs a document. That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, right. and yet it's, it's, it's a really great, it's fascinating to look at some of the responses. Uh, some people find the film tremendously boring, which is understandable. Uh, and then other people say like, this is one of the best spy thrillers ever. I'm like, Yes, I love the movie, and yet somehow I feel like that can't possibly be true, um, uh, because it is. Uh, did you see it? I forget. Uh, yeah, I did see it. Okay, yes. uh, I, I mean it. everything about it is my kind of thing, uh, and so in. But in watching it and realizing, like, yeah, I mean, this is in many ways a very slow-moving, small film and i wasn't sure if jen was going to like it and she wound up loving it she was just riveted and just totally got what the movie was doing and and really appreciated the tone and i realized like it's it's a movie for grown-ups and more specifically it's a movie for grown-ups who want grown-up movies who understand what this film is and what the ending means you know that uh, the, it doesn't, you know, it ends in a very cynical way and it's, but it's not a situation where like, ah, the bomb went off and we didn't want mm-hmm. it to. It's not even that it's, ah, bureaucracy wins the day. Like some, and that level of frustration of like having an idea, uh, an idealistic goal, even if you're, uh, pursuing it in a very, uh, cynically pragmatist way, um, or pragmatic way. Um, and then just the the short-sighted come in who want a quick, easy win, and they mm. ruin everything. Like, it's just, it's the kind of thing that I think anybody can relate to yeah. in their own life. All, but here, there are life or death, con- death consequences, even if we're not seeing them on screen. And it's just, it's a film that requires so much discipline. It requires such an understanding of tone that I think Anton Corbin clearly has, which is this is really, this is all the behind the scenes stuff, which most people would find tremendously boring or tedious, but because we're there with the characters, they know the importance and he conveys it without ever, ever dumbing everything down. Um, and so I think it's, it's, it's a triumph of tone of cinematography, music, editing, uh, acting, the whole thing. And it's a film that, yeah, if you said, like, I'm in the mood for a spy thriller, you probably would not arrive at a Most Wanted Man. But if you said, I'm in the mood for a film that is going to really 
force me to pay attention and reward me paying attention. That's, this is the film for you. Mm. I, I love it so much. Yeah, I should see it again. Um, but I'm busy watching classic movies I've never seen before for the first time. Taking sure. a page out of your book from earlier in the quarantine, I watched a Kurosawa film that I've never seen. Uh, and also taking a page out of your book, a movie that you uh, reviewed the Criterion Blu-ray of like six years ago when it came out. And that's 1958's The Hidden Fortress. Hey, all right. Um, which is such a blast. This movie, uh, it, I feel like I'm, you know, whenever I do this movie journal, th- we do the movie journal and I talk about like filling in a blind spot i always feel dumb like saying anything about the movie because i'm assuming all of our listeners already have seen it and know it's great Um, and every single word you would say has been said or written about it many times before yeah uh including the fact that the uh the namesake hidden fortress is not even in it's only in the first part of the movie like uh, by the halfway point they've left the hidden fortress and it's it's gone it's not even a part of the story anymore it just seemed like it seemed like a line of dialogue from the movie that kurosawa thought would make a good title yeah so calls it the hidden fortress yeah when you have the opportunity to call something hidden fortress you go with it but a fortress is something that is stationary and this is like a road movie like adventure movie like it's like a a, i guess a quest is the movie that or is the word that we're we're thinking of it's about uh uh to my one problem with the movie is the some i think classism that the the two the two dumb idiot characters are just referred to as peasants like they're constantly referred to as peasants as if the fact that they're dumb idiots and the fact that they're peasants are the same thing to call them dumb peasants would be uh redundant uh, sure sure um, i i was kind of bothered by I that, like the but, idea of referring to them as as big dumb idiots yeah uh well one of them is a little dumb idiot their their yeah. their performances are uh in that in that sort of archetypal like unmodulated way they never change sure. uh, these characters um but they're very well cast in terms of one of them is kind of a uh, like a not huge but he's a little bit oafish and the other one yeah. is like the little ball of, they're like ren and stimpy in a way um, <laughs> that's perfect yes uh and, and so they've uh joined a war to try and make their fortune but they keep getting just like taken prisoner by one side or the other and forced to dig, dig graves uh and while digging at one point they find some gold this leads them to to share mafune's uh warrior who is trying to uh ferret a princess from one kingdom to another without being detected and these two peasants get kind of roped into that uh plan and later another um uh i guess she's a slave girl that they rescue i guess or the tishir mafune's character rescues at the behest of the princess ends up becoming so by the end of uh, the movie there's five in this sort of team of not team of rivals but team of people who don't really like each other for the most part but they have this common goal of we need to get this princess to to safety you know for different reasons one of them is the princess one of them it's a sense of duty. The other two were like, we're going to get rich if we do this. Yeah. And then the slave girl is like, well, the princess is the one who, uh, uh organized my freedom. Uh, and so I have some loyalty to, to her, but mostly it's, like I said, it's a road movie. There's, great just set pieces you've got the set piece you've got the hidden fortress itself uh you've got little things like there's multiple times where they're climbing like sort of loose rock hills yeah and the princess and Tajir Mifune seem to have no problem with it but the peasants like can't seem to get up these hills and it's <laughs> hilarious uh and so there's big like very broad comic uh, a very broad sense of humor to this movie that i liked but also there's a long i don't know i'm not sure what the weapon is uh it's like a spear i guess but a spear uh suggests you're like throwing it at someone but i don't know what it's called when it's like a long stick oh with yeah a yeah pointy thing at the end but there's a tajir mafuni and an opposing general who uh who ends up becoming a pretty big part of the plot later on mm-hmm. um have a very long fight that's just a fantastic action sequence yeah and the movie's just full of stuff it seems like uh it, it does seem like i know it's um uh one of it's often listed as one of george lucas's main inspirations uh in star wars and you can see how the movie does feel like 
uh, almost in an Indiana Jones way too. It feels like a couple episodes or, or a few episodes of a serial thrown together, just like, and then yeah. there's this thing and then this thing happens. And then it's, so it's like, it's, it's episodic, but it's also uh, gorgeously framed um, as a, as a, uh, uh, an adventure movie, you know, um, uh, and, uh, it's in, in widescreen and it's, it's beautiful and, uh, a ton of fun. It's an absolutely fun movie to watch, even at yeah. two hours and 18 minutes, a long, big, long movie, but it's, uh, it's a fun time. Yeah, it's pretty wonderful. Um, okay. So next up for me is, uh, I want to make sure I got the, the director's name, right? Hang on one second should have been typing that while you were talking, but I, I was, you know, listening uh, with uh, bated breath. Um, okay. <laughs> Thank you. It is uh, Stephen Ohl's Useless Humans, which okay. uh, I realized uh, shortly after writing my negative review that one of the writers is former guest of the show, Travis Betts. <laughs> and uh, I was, I was like, wondering oh, boy. When I, yeah. <laughs> I think that, you know what, that's good for our credibility. Sure. We're willing to, yeah. Okay. You know, it, admittedly, yeah, I, I probably would not have sugarcoated it uh, if I had written, you know, if I'd known that ahead of time. Yeah. Um, but I might have actually emailed and said, hey, just a heads up. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to write a negative review of this. Um, but uh, yeah, so, you know, there's, it's an hour and 20 minute film um, and it's clearly made uh, with a low budget and it features these four or five characters, it's four officially. And there's like a, a tag along character uh, there. They go to this mountain cabin and at the same time that there are, there is a potential like alien outbreak, uh, alien uh, invasion, pardon me. And it's a comedy. And so the idea of these, these characters who are sort of losers in a lot of ways they're they're all like around 30 years old and one of them is about to is just about to turn 30 and so they're all reflecting on their lives not really turning out the way they wanted to so they're very much sort of in that quarter life uh crisis uh so to speak um and so it's like okay that's a really neat idea i like the idea of characters who feel like their life has not had a great deal of purpose. And now suddenly something comes along that could give them purpose. Uh, and the idea of that being a comedy, I think could, could work out really well. And the, the spirit in which the thing was made uh, is something that really resonates uh, with me as, as a movie fan. Um, you know, when I was in middle school and high school, I got my friends together and we would make these sort of comedy horror movies or these parodies or whatever. Uh, and it was just, so it was just a lot of, a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And you can tell everybody in the film is having tremendous fun. It just, it, it feels in more ways than one, like those movies we made in high school. Um, which is to say very undisciplined and, uh, histrionic with, with, like through the roof energy sort of being like, Oh no, that's the punchline. And so it doesn't really, it doesn't really work. Um, and it, you know, if you had the comedy being like a hundred percent on point, then the cheapness of the alien costume and all that, uh, would seem like, a would seem charming, but the comedy doesn't always work. And so then the, then the, the sci-fi part, you know, if you're going to lean on that, well, that doesn't really work. And it just, it, it seems a little bit amateurish, which I recognize it kind of is, except everybody involved is a professional. They've worked in, uh, it, whether it be the actors or whatever, they've, they've made other movies or TV shows in some capacity. And so it could just be a function of the budget or it could be a, a function of like not having enough time to really flesh things out. But either way, it just, it feels uh, really uh, amateurish, which is uh, a bummer. But uh, I will say there is, I didn't mention this in my review. Um, there's an actor named Joey Kern who was in uh, the original Cabin in the Woods. He was in uh, Super Troopers. He's been in a bunch of stuff, um, but uh, he plays this character. So you have your, your four main characters and one of them is this uh, young woman who brings her sort of uh, hipster uh, boyfriend played by Joey Kern along. And then uh, our main character happens upon him in the bathroom, uh, taking a, a dick pic with his phone <laughs> and you don't see anything, but our main character is like, Oh, Hey, Whoa, what are you, you know, what are you doing? Um, and then he says, 
he goes, Hey, which, and the guy, rather than feel like, Oh my gosh, scandalized, he holds up his phone and goes, he goes, Hey, which, which photo do you think is better? This one, like, you know, it's like, I'm only like it. I'm only like half mass, but I, I like my expression. <laughs> Whereas here rock hard, but what's my mouth doing, you know? And it's like, okay, that's pretty funny. And then when the scene ends, and so Joey Kern is playing this character and just like, again, just totally committing to this guy, not having a problem and not being self-conscious at all. And then there's a moment that I don't know if it was, if it was ad-libbed or they just thought of it later. It's an off-screen thing where he exits the frame and then you hear him go, oh shit, my dick's still out. Um, <laughs> I laughed really, really hard at that <laughs> because it's just a complete, it's the kind of thing where like, because that's always been out of frame, it forces you to re recontextualize everything you just saw. Uh, like this entire conversation has just been out and he didn't realize it. And then it's like, oh no, what are you going to do uh and so that's the thing is like if the if the film had 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 that level of discipline and subtlety and like just had these had everything just a little bit more fine-tuned i think it could have been a really really solid comedy certainly it's it's the sort of the themes that it's exploring are pretty solid i just think that the the execution as a, again as i said is a little bit amateurish um a couple of things about joey kern i will say just to save us from getting emails you said he was in the original cabin fever you said oh, cabin in the woods you said cabin oh, in the woods me. yes yes cabin um, fever sorry about that uh, i knew what you meant because i knew i know who he is and i also know they didn't remake cabin in the woods and they did remake cabin fever correct yes. i saw both uh oof. um <laughs> but uh also i um uh, when my now wife and I, this is way, way before we were married, went to a midnight screening at the, uh, the Chinese theater, man's Chinese theater before it was remodeled, uh, Thursday night at midnight, the first showing of Harry Potter and the half blood prince. So that would have been what? 2009. Uh, that would be 10. Yeah. I think nine. Yeah. Yeah. That's, the, um, that's six, right? That's six. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's nine. Um, he and uh, the actress Jennifer Goodwin from Once Upon a Time and, and Big Love, uh, who were I've looked it up and were, were dating at the time, uh, were right next to us. Uh, uh, so I I, uh, I like that. I don't know if they're both Harry Potter nerds. If one of them is and took the other one along, um, but uh, that was fun to uh, to watch Harry Potter and the Half Blood Prince at midnight. And uh, you and I are gonna we could go off on this. Uh, uh, like we always do, but now that when movies, well, now movies don't play theaters anymore, but uh, when they sure. played in theater, uh, they started like the Thursday evening. Yeah. It used to mean something to go to the Thursday midnight screen. It used to, it used to cost you something. Yeah. You yeah. know, aside from money, obviously. Yeah. Um, and I think, honestly, I don't think I've done, I don't think I've been to a Thursday midnight screening since the last Harry Potter, which was 2011, right? Mm. Yeah. Uh, 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 wait, what year was Cabin in the Woods? 12. Uh, oh, you know what? That was the last one I saw then. Okay. At Thursday night at midnight. That's a good midnight movie. I didn't love it, but. Uh... Yes, that is a very good midnight movie. All right. Uh, so my my next two are both rewatches. Re I'll start with one. I was thinking about this movie because you, you remember in the last movie journal, I talked about Dragged Across Concrete. And uh, I was thinking about the idea of a movie that has a sympathy for a racist character at its center without forgiving that racism. And it reminded me of a movie that I don't think often gets talked about in this way. And also another movie like we tried to cross concrete in which the person who plays the racist it was it was a racist in real life okay. i'm talking of course about john ford's the searchers which I, I saw don't think, that coming yeah uh yeah I, I haven't i hadn't watched this movie like sat down and watched it from beginning to end since i think you and i watched it together when we lived together back in college oh, wow. okay. um that was the last time i'd actually watched the whole movie um and uh my god it's so it's so wonderful this movie it's so yeah. it's so beautiful uh and also i think people conflate who John Wayne was, who was like, like, I'm not being like uh, a dick when I describe him as a racist. He like literally referred to himself as a white supremacist in that like famous playboy interview. Yeah. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's not a joke. Uh, and, uh, and I think people conflate that with the fact that, Ethan, uh, I just watched the movie. I already forgot his last name. Edwards. Uh, Ethan, Ethan Edwards. Edwards in in the Searchers also is like not just 
regular old west doesn't like native americans is consumed and driven by his hatred of comanche comanche uh, indians in, in particular yeah and often blinded by it um uh and, and i think people conflate that with the movie because he's the lead character uh, arguably uh, or maybe uh marty is i don't know um however you de- you decide who the main character is yeah um uh people conflate the, that with the with the movie with these types of movies as automatically endorsing that worldview and i think watching the searchers with that uh uh, with something like Dragged Across Concrete in mind, which I didn't like Dragged Across Concrete for him well much, but gave me like an example of, uh, uh, yeah, this is how you do it. This is a movie about a racist that depicts him as a human being that he, you know, he has, he cares about things and he, uh, can be vulnerable, yeah. but, uh, also, uh, his, his racism is not something the movie forgives. Um, and that it's, I, it's something that he actually has to, and I, if I have any complaint about the searchers, it's that maybe uh, the moment that he sort of stops being racist is a little too convenient. Sure. Um, that, uh, I mean, this is minor, I guess, spoilers for the searchers. I found myself wondering, like if the movie ended with Marty having to kill Ethan, would that sure. have been a better move? Would that have been a better ending? maybe would the movie be as famous as it is now maybe not um but uh but just aside from that it's a uh, uh beautifully staged and timed uh and filmed uh, movie i mean the hidden fortress and searchers uh i mean kurosawa was an, admittedly a big fan of john ford yeah and you can uh, you can see the the kindred spirits between the two uh between the two filmmakers especially with these widescreen uh, vistas and stuff uh yeah the searchers absolutely beautiful uh i love that movie yeah and uh has one of my favorite punchlines, uh which is somebody's fiddle yeah is, uh, it, is that a punchline? i mean it's just a laugh that's line. that's yeah a laugh line is the way to say it but uh, one of my favorite jokes uh, uh, in any movie yeah so i forgot that you weren't on the um when we did the tcm at home edition wrap-up episode we talked about that because not that the searchers she wore a yellow ribbon uh was at the TCM and I compared, there's a part in she wore a ribbon where a very frustrated Victor McLaughlin just, just, uh, spurts out whose dog is this uh and uh, and i compared it to uh somebody's fiddle which it's they're both very sort of similarly structured yeah. and similarly funny lines in john ford movies and i mean like that that's somebody i've seen she wore a yellow ribbon but it's been a long time and i don't remember that moment but uh but somebody's fiddle has stayed with me partially because like that seems so modern uh-huh. The idea of stopping a fight for this thing yeah. and then delivering it that way. Yeah. It really doesn't seem like something out of a 1956 Western, but then at the same time, the film itself was already sort of moving towards something different within the genre. And yeah. maybe and we the, should just, we should give the past more credit sometimes. I think that's kind of the, yeah. the, uh, the point that I was getting at with, you know, you don't assume that the, that the movie can be read so simply just because it yeah. came from the fifties uh, yeah. and again, stars and admitted white supremacist. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's that's definitely, good, that's uh sorry. I'm, I'm, you know what? Finish your thought and then I'll get to my thought. It's something that I, fi- that I, I fall victim to as well. Even though I love older films, I do tend to think that like, Oh, well it was the, it was the Hayes code era. So of course they're not going to explore things the, the same way or whatever but that doesn't mean that the people involved weren't thinking about film the same way we think about it now and try and might even had similar comedic sensibilities or whatever. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to incorporate that where they could, you know? And so, so when you see that sort of breakthrough, you're just like, Oh my gosh, how, how crazy when it's like, well, maybe the exception is everything else. The, the limitations (laughs) keeping them from making jokes like that. Um, or just having moments like that at all. Uh, it, similarly, like I, re, I was watching, like there is a, uh, on my DVD version of the Maltese Falcon, they have like a series, they have a, a little montage of uh, outtakes. And it's weird to hear Humphrey Bogart say, God damn it. Because he got, <laughs> because he got his, his line wrong. And it's just like, Whoa, wait, what? Like that's, I've never heard him say that before. It's like, well, um, yes, of course you wouldn't hear him say that. One? Is it, 
is it Betty Davis that you can find that on YouTube? It's, there's someone else like that that who would cuss when she'd blow a line. I think they're on uh, YouTube. I want to say it's Betty Davis. I could see it being like, Betty it Davis. Like a Betty Davis um, thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. But it's very easy for us um, to like. I think almost in in a way like infantilize the past because it yeah. was constrained by very specific rules. But it's like the people involved were still adults trying to make adult <laughs> entertainment. But that brings me to my other point. I've, I talked about when I talked about Drive to Cars Concrete that I have a policy of like when I watch movies that either are written by or directed by or star or whatever involves with these uh, people who have done these awful things, I try to make a donation to sort of balance out my karma. Sure. And I realize that I don't do that with older movies because I don't know if I feel like, well, John Wayne's dead now. He can't hurt anybody. But I think that's not true. Like that, that we, we, I think one thing we're constantly being reminded of, especially lately, is that um, the racism of the past is not relegated to the past that it sort of uh, it it ripples it has repercussions so maybe I will because I watched the searchers uh, even though I don't think the movie endorses that but because just because I watched a John Wayne movie maybe I will make a a Black Lives Matter or a Southern Poverty Law Center donation to uh, to balance out my karma it's it is interesting to run across people who will look at, you know, and that's things like, you know, you and I still, uh, there are older films that we love that maybe even there, even the attitude sincerely held, uh, within that film is something that is, that is off putting to us, but we are still able to recognize and maybe overly compartmentalize and say like, okay, obviously that's not great, but the movie is still amazing, whatever. Um, but I, I think there are still some people, uh, there are people who look down on movies of the past and say, oh, well, those, you know, movies are so much better, more sophisticated. That's a word that's used a lot, mm-hmm. more sophisticated today. Uh, but then there are other people who say, ah, movies from the past, that's how, like, that's when they were really great. And my answer is usually to both of them, you're dumb. You're a dumb person. <laughs> uh, things are great. Uh, things are great then. They're great now. They were terrible then. They're terrible now. Uh, everything, there's room for all kinds of horrors and wonder uh, at in every age um and to over to be overly simplistic so that's the thing is like undoubtedly there would be there'd be people who could watch the searchers and they may not actually pick up on what you and i and in my opinion john ford uh think about it which is like condemning this this attitude of ethan like they might look at that and say like ah yes john wayne and and that character like he gets the job done it's like well yes I think maybe we need to define what jo- what the job is mm-hmm. here. Um, and so uh, it is interesting when watching older films. And I do think that uh, that recognizing that if they are damaging, they can still be damaging while still also recognizing the the good of of what they are, what they represent and what and maybe even what they led to. I think in, I mean, I don't think the concept of the revisionist Western was widely accepted or or acknowledged yet in 1956 certainly yeah. once man who shot liberty valance came along then it's like okay now we're what really getting that? it 62 62 okay uh but i think it helped it along uh the idea of like hey you know what maybe these attitudes weren't quite mm-hmm. so uh so noble um, but anyway, okay. Sorry. I spent too long on that. Um, but it will, uh, and it, you know what? It kind of leads into, uh, okay. uh, another rewatch here. Um, Jen and I watched it last night and today it is Quentin Tarantino's once upon a time in Hollywood, a film that, uh, I get the, I get the hankering to watch every once in a while. Um, even though it's only been out for about a year. Um, yeah, man, what a, masterpiece i love it more every time i see it i get emotional now um when i see it and when i talk about it and it's not merely because you know you're aware of the of the fantasy aspect and that the realization of oh these people here at the end welcoming rick dalton in you know you're literally it's like oh these are this is a moment that never happened and not merely because Rick Dalton didn't exist, but because by this point, these four people were dead, mm-hmm. uh, in very, in a very yeah, terrible I, way. It's not a, not a competition, but I, I be, I beat you too. The first time I saw it, I welled up at, sure. that, at that ending. It's, it is such a beautiful ending. And the thing that gets me, that gets me about it isn't merely 
the the fact that it makes you think about the tragedy of this moment but it also as you and i've talked about in regards to inglorious bastards uh it just makes me value the role of art um in that yes it can be escapist it can get us it can allow us to live out like a fantasy of oh wouldn't it be like if there was going to be violence that night boy i wish it had been this instead of that um and some people would say, well, what good does that do? And it's like, I do think that in a way, when you, when you reflect on what the world could be versus what it is, I think it forces you to think, well, what can I do to make it what it could be? Now, I don't mean go out and smash a hippie girl's face into every surface you find. <laughs> yeah. I don't mean that. But I think just in a larger sense, it gets you thinking about, uh, about harsh reality versus fantasy and try to think like, is the fantasy so intangible do we have to live you know the past there's nothing you can do about it but what are we doing right now in the present to prevent that sort of thing from happening again and uh and i just find that i mean so many people have a problem with that with, with revising history and to me it's like even though that moment is done so over the top and yet hilariously and yet and yet i'm so t that it can pivot from that to this poignant beautiful ending and that the film itself is it can be a celebration of yes all the neuroses that come with making art but also the the pure joy as we see uh sharon tate in a movie theater uh, oh which i of course yeah. i miss tremendously um in a movie theater watching herself and yeah on one hand it's like hey that's me up on the screen but, and and the people in the audience like me, but it's also like what I'm doing, even in this totally forgettable movie is still resonating with the audience and it's pleasing them. And it's just such a celebration of what movies are, what they can be and, and the role they play in our lives. And it just, you know, there, there are often times when I feel like what I do, what I've done with my life is pretty inconsequential, uh, you know, in the larger sense, you know, I'm not uh, rushing into any burning buildings to save people or anything like that. Quite the opposite. I've set many buildings on fire <laughs> and then I run out of them. Uh, but no, like, but when I see a movie like this, it's saying like, yes, of course, there are much more important jobs, vocations, passions out there, but there, it creating art is no small thing and it can really it can really touch you in a way that makes life worth living and makes you feel connected with the past the present the future people that you wouldn't have that you would have nothing in common with um and man it's uh, what a wonderful what a wonderful film i'm i'm so glad that he made it i it's it is an argument in favor of and i'm putting quotes around this it's an argument in favor of self-indulgence uh so many people leveled that that claim against the movie and it's like you know what when somebody is as un as surprisingly uh insightful as tarantino it's easy to think that he isn't uh but when somebody the way is, he presents himself the way he presents himself yeah. and the, and even the style in which he makes the movies um but yeah if it's somebody who at least takes art as seriously as he does i'll let him indulge himself all day long if it means we get a movie like once upon a time in hollywood once every 10 years then by all means indulge <laughs> yeah. away uh man yeah i remember the, the the second time my wife and i saw it we saw it at the new beverly and then afterwards walked down to um uh el coyote where sharon mm. tate had her uh last meal and and yeah and and drank at the bar and ate chips and salsa and it's like that's what movies and bars it's like the two things that i miss the most right now <laughs> uh, yeah. it was a, pro, a perfect night um all right uh and then so uh, this is it right i just have the one left and then we're done yep. so this is another rewatch an unexpected rewatch but uh the criterion sent it to me in the mail uh and that's night the 1953 version of the war of the worlds mm. um uh which i'd seen before and i think uh and and was surprised by but i don't know I, we talked about this a little bit back on our summer movie preview and we talked about uh blu-rays that were coming out um then maybe that was my own condescension that i was surprised sure by it i tend to see like you know uh sci-fi b movies especially from the 50s uh um 
I don't know why I have, we're talking about, we have the same thing we're talking about with, with condescending, being condescending towards the past. Uh, I'm always surprised when they're good. And if they kept, they keep being good. Like, I mean, uh, forbidden planet is sixties, right? What year is that? Uh, forbidden planet. I feel like that's, is it 50s? Late, mid to late fifties? Okay, so Forbidden Planet, Daily Earth stood still, then stuff like Them and even like Tarantula, the stuff that I these yeah. movies that I've seen that like every time I see one, I'm like, oh, that's way better than I uh, yeah. expected. And so I was surprised initially um, the first time I saw The War of the Worlds, um, not just that it was good, but I was surprised by how uh, bleak uh, a movie it is. Hmm. Have you seen it? I uh, have not, uh, I mean, but that it, does surprise me. I mean given the story it shouldn't be a surprise it's a movie about lots and lots of people dying yeah. um and it doesn't uh skirt that that sort of uh aspect of it but i think i liked it even more the second time partially because of the imprimatur of being a criterion movie probably <laughs> like uh, sure. uh, uh help the contextually but also the new uh the new restoration is gorgeous um, this is a movie that has lots of uh, lots and lots of color uh, in it. Um, the aliens themselves, you know, are represented by red and green and blue lights, and so the color is a big part. They shoot these these rays that blow people up. The the, the original the initial like meteor they land on is like a glowing, hot, pulsing, dark red, hmm. uh, and the the restoration of this new Blu-ray is fantastic. It looked absolutely beautiful, and the sound restoration uh is is very good too the movie has uh some very sort of uh indelible sound effects so um i don't have much more new to say about the movie but i what i will say is if you like these type of movies and even if you like war if you like war of the worlds already especially um this blu-ray is worth picking up it's out now my review will be up uh soon um it's a, a really really gorgeous restoration 